As you well know, Toe dips its toes, so to speak, into philosophy, both publicly as well as I do so in my personal life. I encourage you to do the same with Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. Nearly 2,000 years after it was written, this guide to personal growth remains eminently relevant for anyone seeking to lead a meaningful life. Meditations isn't your average self-help book. In fact, it was the emperor's personal journal, and this makes it useful not only as a form of propositional knowledge, but to aid perspectival knowledge, something that John Verveke talks about as exigent, though missing in our culture. We sit in this improbable, even preposterous position of having the opportunity to peer into one of the deepest soul-searching, thoughtful, private questions, internal struggles that the once leader of the world thought about in his moments alone. Like, man, I would love to interview him if Marcus were a guest on tow. Maybe he would be a fan of the CTMU. Maybe he would be a Castrop sympathizer. I'll leave that up to you. Dive into the philosophies of Marcus Aurelius today with the book that Ryan Holiday said is the greatest book ever written. Meditations is available from Penguin Random House at prh.com slash meditations. As always, you can click on the timestamp in the description as well as here to skip this longish introduction. The Theories of Everything channel is back with a new season, starting with last week's AMA, which will be in the description. From this point forward, there will be new content approximately once a week, sometimes even more frequently. Today's guests are Carl Friston, Michael Levin, and Chris Field. The former two have been on this channel and mentioned several times prior, whereas Chris Fields is making his debut. Chris Fields is a researcher in topological quantum field theory, as well as information theory, and publishes work on what constitutes an observer. Carl Friston is a professor of neuroscience at the University College London, and is the inventor of the free energy principle. Michael Levin is a developmental and synthetic biologist at the Tufts University. The links to all their previous podcasts on the Toad channel will be in the description. My name is Kurt Jaimungle. I'm a Torontonian filmmaker with a background in mathematical physics, dedicated to the explication, quote-unquote, of the variegated terrain of theories of everything, primarily from a theoretical physics perspective, but as well as trying to understand what role does consciousness have as constitutive reality? Is it emergent? Is it fundamental? Now, the goals of theolocutions is to interject seldomly, if at all, allowing each guest to give their perspectives on one another's thoughts, essentially giving us the experience of a fly on the wall for the sorts of academic conversations that would ordinarily occur behind closed doors, spurring research in real time. One of the central issues of today's podcast is the concept of babbling, which I haven't heard discussed virtually anywhere else outside of child development or language acquisition, though it can be generalized metaphorically, perhaps even literally, to the vacuum fluctuations, to interpret what vacuum fluctuations are doing as an indicator of the universe's proto-consciousness. That is, the universe babbling to understand itself, but I won't spoil the surprise. If you'd like to hear more podcasts like these, then do consider going to patreon.com slash kurtjaimungle, as the patrons and the sponsors are the only reasons that I'm able to do this full-time. With regard to sponsors, there's one for today's episode, and that is brilliant. During the winter break, I decided to brush up on the fundamentals of information theory, which is what constructor theory is heavily based in, and I'd like to do an episode on that. So I took Brilliant's course on knowledge and uncertainty and random variables, and after taking that course, I could finally see why entropy is defined the way it is, why the formula for it is extremely natural. There are plenty of courses. You can even learn group theory which is what's being referenced when you hear that the internal symmetries of the standard model 
is U1 cross SU2 cross SU3. Those are Lee groups. Visit brilliant.org slash toe to get 20% off the annual subscription. I recommend that you don't stop before four lessons. Just keep pursuing until you've accomplished at least four. And I think you'll be greatly surprised at the ease at which you can now comprehend subjects you previously had a difficult time grokking. And now on to today's episode, which is one that I'm extremely lucky to be able to present to you all. You'll be able to see the mutual respect that the guests have for one another. We start off actually by asking, what is it that you respect about each other's work? Enjoy this theolocution between Carl Friston, Michael Levin, and Chris Fields. I've been extremely excited about this. So, Professor, what do you find unique about Carl's and Chris's work? And what is it that you respect about them? Well, uh, what, what a great question! I think all all discussions should uh, should should start with that question. Um, uh, th- there's a lot. I mean, I think I think uh, the most basic thing I can say is this: uh, I'm, I'm often asked by by uh, conference organizers and students as far as who who they should follow, yeah, whose whose work they should um, keep track of, and and so I keep lists. And uh, and and Carl and Chris are at the very top of two specific lists for me, and I'm just always amazed uh, about this. Is that the first? The first is that um, both of them are experts in at least three different fields, but probably more. So, so, so they have the ability to kind of merge really deep um, understanding of different fields. I mean, there's many people that are experts in, in one thing, but I'm just, uh, I'm just always incredibly impressed as had how they, uh, both of them can weave together a really deep knowledge from, from, a, from diverse uh, disciplines. And, and, I, and, and that leads to the kind of the second thing uh, that, that I'm really uh, inspired by, which is just the kind of the sheer density of new ideas. You know, it's hard enough to push things in one, just kind of one known direction and do science and so on. But both, both Chris and Carl's work um, consistently make me think in new ways uh, give me ideas I've never never thought of before. It's just uh, just just amazing. So yeah, so I'm super excited to be able to work with both of them and to and to have this discussion. Great, Chris. Same question, but toward Michael and Carl. Uh, well, I can say that uh, one thing I certainly admire is that uh, Michael and Carl are both top-level biologists who are interested in theory and and deeply involved in theory and have a deep understanding of uh, theory. And uh, something that I enormously admire is that both of them have that interest and yet are deeply engaged in practical applications. Carl in mental health and Mike in regenerative biology. And that's a rare combination. Carl, what is it that you find unique about Michael's and Chris's work and what do you particularly respect about them as people perhaps? I deliberately haven't rehearsed an answer. So what I say comes from the heart. Um, So with Mike, I first met him vicariously through a friend, uh, Giovanni Pizzullo, um, and didn't really know very much about his work until I visited his website. <laughs> and then I realised how influential and important he was. And then I recognised all the little bulletins you get on um, social media and emails. I started to recognise his name and realised that he, you know, he was quite a mover and shaker out there. What I like about both of them, they both think really, really fast and they both think out of the box. Um, um, So I think what characterises 
both of their thinking really is just to ask what is a thing in and of itself without making any prior assumptions and then putting it back together um, from basic principles and coming up with some sometimes counterintuitive um, conclusions. Um, but for me, almost uh, universally, exactly the same counterintuitive conclusions I've come to after about 10 years of thinking about a particular problem, but never dare tell anybody. But they do. They write it down very eloquently. <laughs> and, and they're very, very productive. Um, Chris, I've known for less long, and I've met him via Mike. Um, and uh, in addition to that, uh, in the same way that many people I meet have physics envy, um, I've got quantum envy uh, for, uh, about Chris. You know, he just seems to know so much and, uh, and think about the world in a way which mm. I don't have that sort of fluency in. But it sounds really, really useful and, and quite correct. So I'm hoping if I hang around long enough, some of it will rub off on me. Or at least I'll be able to use the words without sounding like an idiot. What would be an example of this out-of-the-box thinking? You mentioned thinking about what is a thing in and of itself. What else? Uh, there are numerous examples. Um, the first thing that just came to mind was just putting together fundamental questions about self-organization. If you were Varela, uh, you're sort of autopoiesis, self-assembly, self-construction. If you're a chemist, it would be self-assembly. If you're a theoretical biologist, um, you will be wondering about why on earth is it that um, all multicellular organisms form? Because there's a deep paradox there. You know, if it is a case that I have to have a surface as a little organ, then some of my cells have, cells have to stop replicating. And yet that is in direct contradiction to the principles of natural selection. I'm going to turn off my reproductive capacity, my adaptive fitness, so defined in a, in a theoretical context. So just really sort of grasping the nettle and thinking about, well, these things exist. What principles could possibly explain the paradoxes when looked at from sort of the unilateral, the monothematic view of natural selection, for example, or the monothematic view of self-organization in physics? So thinking out of the box, literally in this instance, um, entails being able to take multiple perspectives on a particular problem and seeing the contradictions and seeing how they can be resolved. Now, that will be one of many examples. Uh, there, there was a paper, and I'm afraid I can't remember the specific one, perhaps Mike and Chris will be able to enlighten me, but there was one paper written, I, I think about a year or two ago, where they actually listed, I think there were 15 basic conclusions about the, the fundaments and the, uh, and the, um, the nature of self-organisation and self as distinct from other uh, in any system. And you know, this listing are uh, uh, 15 really interesting points and predictions, all of which either um, I'm sure will be formally demonstrably analytically um, uh, true, uh, or um, uh, at least yield or be amenable to uh, a mathematical analysis, um, or would be empirically verifiable um, you know, over the next few years. What was that paper? There was a paper in Neuroscience of Consciousness uh, arguing for a, an approach to consciousness that spanned phylogeny. And we were very interested in that paper specifically to look at uh, bacteria and single cells and um, 
facultative multicellular, such as microbial biofilms, and ask, what do these systems know about the world? How do they see the world? Uh, how does it, how does E. coli perceive the world, for example? And we suggested that the the answer is in in terms of of the sorts of things that we call taste and viscosity, but that experiences of taste and viscosity are perfectly good kinds of experiences. And that if we think about how these kinds of systems deal with their worlds and solve problems within their worlds, that that would give us a more unified understanding of what it meant to be um, a system that was aware. And so you're trying to use E. coli as a means of understanding yourself or humans by the way is this a project do you feel like your undertaking is an attempt for you to understand yourself or are you trying to understand humans like I'm, I'm wondering is this more philanthropic or it's selfish and then it bleeds into the philanthropic well I I actually also want to understand e coli I'd be we have we don't have a great understanding of of the lives of other organisms. Professor Levin, what puzzle do you find most important? What do you think about on a semi-daily basis or even perhaps multiple times a day? And then we'll go around the table here with Chris Fields and Carl Furston next. And then it's essentially me taking a backseat and allowing you all to free flow, just for the audience to know. I know you all know this template already. Yeah, um, so, so the thing I think about um, many times a day uh, has to do with the scaling of cognition. So I want to understand two, two, two major things. One is how it is that uh, some collection of uh, competent uh, parts comes together to form a, uh, an emergent self with uh, preferences, goals, memories, um, cognitive capacities that belong to it, but not to the individual parts. So I want to understand how that, how that emerges, how the goals of uh, you know, sort of humble, um, simple, uh, simple kinds of systems scale up into much more grandiose goals that we see in during, during development, during behavior, uh, you know, during uh, culture and, and, and so on. And, and, I'm, and I'm also very interested in uh, the sort of the left side of that spectrum. Where does it begin? You know, is there really a zero on the spectrum? I think that uh, all of us here would agree that there is a spectrum for these things. It's not a set of binary categories. But what happens at the very left side of the spectrum? And so one of the first questions, you know, when we get to that, that, um, that I had written down to ask uh, both, both Chris and Carlos to sort of comment on <clears throat> what, does the, what does the Venn diagram look like of, of the set of things that are alive versus the set of things that are cognitive? Yeah, how do those two categories relate to each other? Um, do they overlap as one a subset of the other? And what really happens at the very beginning? You know, like, can we, can we develop a kind of... Um, Mm, which, which I think, I think both of them have been working on a kind of, basically a kind of panpsychism that doesn't, doesn't sort of paint on new um, cognitive um, mysteries on top of a physics that works perfectly well, but instead to try and to try to view physics from the bottom up as having already a useful cognitive uh, lens on it. And, and how does that help us to build up cognition? So that's, that's something that I think about every day. Chris. Um. I, I thought every day or almost every day for a long time about why 
we humans uh, see objects embedded in space-time. So why do we see things that we treat as independent of each other? And why do we see them, operate on them, interact with them, uh, think about them as embedded in this coordinate system that we call space? And uh, equally important, why do we see them as maintaining their identities as things over this other coordinate that we call time? Carl. Um, well, I have to confess, I spend recurrently most of my time thinking about me. Um, but in an academic sense, you know, how do I work? Uh, so it's a, it's a curious mixture of introspection and trying to understand why I can introspect uh, in, uh, from the perspective or through the lens of, of a physicist. So I, I spend most of my time dissembling preconceptions, the gifts that uh, our sentience has given us, um, and try to um, reassemble them in relation to physics, density dynamics, uh, you know, that, that has to be articulated in terms of the kind of maths that a physicist would use, which would be you know, effectively differential equations and the calculus of variations. And having done that, there are so many, um, there are a sufficient number of moving parts, but not that many, uh, but the combinatorics then lead you to the, the kinds of questions that Mike was, was talking about. So, you know, what different ways could this um, physics of sentience um, be manifest? What possible ways could it be manifest? And how does that address the distinction between um, things, particles, creatures um, that would show the kind of sense-making and, to my mind, an important aspect is planning that this would disambiguate them from other natural kinds or particular kinds that don't have that kind of facility. And what underwrites that? Um, so that's what I spend most of my time doing. I have to say, in conversation, both with um, Mike and Chris and other people, um, there, you can easily get distracted um, in, in, in a rightful way um, by... Um, thinking about that mechanics in a, exactly what Chris was talking to, which is a sort of scale-free way. But in my rhetoric, that scale-freeness speaks more to the coupling between different scales that Mike was alluding to. Um, so how does this um, mechanics, this physics of sentience, which, which, which I understand largely in terms of probability theory and, and um, effectively Bayesian um, probability theory, um, so what you have is a Bayesian mechanics. How, how does that Bayesian mechanics apply at one scale and another scale? And then, of course, the big question is, is how did the two scales couple to each other? So that, that, that for me, is something that I, I find myself increasingly pressed upon, uh, largely through conversations and collaborations. Um, but the, you know, that does mean that I spend a lot of my time thinking about that and you know, writing demos and mathematical equations, trying to, trying to get to the... Um, the uh, the underpinnings of it. Mike, I see you nodding. So what is it about what Carl said? So I'm sorry, okay, Professor Levin, I apologize. And what is it that what is it that Professor Friston said that has you feeling like you agree with it? Well as 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 usual, I mean he said it perfectly. I couldn't uh, I couldn't say it better myself. I think that's uh, that's that's exactly the kind of um 
uh, re research agenda that I'm interested in. I mean, that's that really is the kind of a, of a very good um, description of, of what I think we're all looking for in a certain sense. Is there a difference between cognition and consciousness? Is one distinct? Is there overlap? Is one a subset? I, I actually can't conceive of cognition without consciousness, which I... I prefer to call awareness uh, not just to be perverse, but because in many cases, uh, consciousness is used in a way that implicitly means self-consciousness, whereas awareness is often used in a way that does not make that implication. Uh, and it's I, I find it difficult to conceive of cognition without any kind of awareness at all so 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 could i just so i'll ask a question then based on what what chris just said and and, and what when you know and what carl has to say about it so so what do you think about the so-called hard problem is there in fact a hard problem at all i would um i would take andy clark's view on this uh um, who has worked closely with, with david chalmers um I, I don't think so, no. I, I, I don't think that the hard problem in and of itself is, um, is the um, interesting um, focus of inquiry. <clears throat> I think the, um, the, the move that I see in philosophy um, has been to the meta problem or the meta hard problem, which is, um, as Andy Clark puts it quite succinctly, is why do we spend so much time puzzling about why we are aware? Um, so <laughs> just asking that question um, speaks to, I think, the nature of the hard problem, which is a sort of very much a second order, a meta, um, a meta capability that we can uh, make sense of our own sense making. And we um, associate that with selfhood. So one has to ha ask the question, what kinds of systems, again, I'd say particles or creatures would have the capacity to represent selfhood and furthermore represent the counterfactuals that would enable you to ask the question, why am I conscious? That immediately just logically presupposes that there is an alternative hypothesis of other counterfactual that I'm not conscious. So imagine now you're talking to um, a creature, you're talking to me, that has this capacity to imagine counterfactuals that cannot exist. So that's a remarkable capacity to have, you know, mm -hmm. um, from my point of view, a sort of internal world model or a generative model where counterfactuals can exist is, is quite remarkable. I, I don't imagine that a, a thermostat or a virus or um, an E. coli will have a sufficiently sophisticated set of you know, um, electrochemical uh, dynamics or kinetics that would enable them to physically represent counterfactuals of this sort. And I could go on, um, you know, the, you know, the, the usual line of argument is, well, why do we have models? Why do we have the capacity to represent counterfactuals? Um, the, um, you end up with saying, yes, you have to have them just if you um, contemplate things that plan. So if things plan, they have to have um, an ability to simulate the future because they have to simulate or represent at some elemental level, the consequences of their action upon the world. And if they have now the capacity to represent something that has not yet happened, namely in the future, 
then they now have the capacity to represent counterfactual outcomes. So I think the, the meta-hard problem inherits simply because we have a sufficiently temporally deep generative model that can represent the consequences of our actions. And of course, using the word our implies some kind of elemental agency and some kind of selfhood, because it's only me that's doing the acting and the consequences of my action, not your action. Uh, so so in, in that sense, I think that the hard problem um, sort of pales into, into insignificance in relation to the, the meta problem of why it is that we have philosophers. Can I, can I pursue that just a little bit? I think you raise an extraordinarily interesting point here, Carl. And so I want to ask you, uh, from a phylogenetic perspective, uh, do you think that organisms that can plan necessarily are able to represent multiple counterfactuals? So let's give an example. Uh, suppose you're a cheetah chasing a gazelle. Uh, you're planning your moves while looking at the gazelle's moves and your objective is success. Do you think that the cheetah worries about the other counterfactual condition where the gazelle isn't caught? Or does it just represent this one counterfactual condition that is in a sense the goal state? Yeah, I think that's an excellent question. I personally think that, um, and when I answer these questions, I think, how would I simulate this? How would I put a cheetah in silico and integrate um, according to the differential equations that must be present under certain assumptions? Um, and my guess is that the cheetah chasing the gazelle would, as you say, just be pursuing a path of least action and would not have an explicit representation of alternative paths. So it would be responding in the moment in a <clears throat> reflexive, habitual way. So that's a really important question because if we don't have, or all of our behavior is just a manifestation of pursuing those paths of least resistance or mathematically those you know, paths of, of stationary action, um, then there is no counterfactual to select from and there is no notion of planning in the sense of I am going to do this as opposed to that. But that doesn't mean to say um, biological organisms um, don't have the capacity to um, plan multiple futures. And I'll just give you one real simple example of um, um, the, your, our brains. And I would imagine even the brains of reptiles to a certain extent um, being able to plan multiple um, actions in the future. And that's in eye movements. So if I just take one of the simplest problems in terms of planning, or perhaps not the simplest, but one of the, um, the, 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 the problems of planning that have to be resolved within um, you know, several hundred milliseconds, given that we have to choose where to look every 250 milliseconds in order to gather the right kind of information to make, you know, to construct a, the scene in which we are situated. And coming back to your preoccupation, Chris, you know, you know, how on earth do we then explain these sparse um, uh, saccadic samples within some frame of reference, some space-time sort of frame? How do we, you know, uh, sense-make 
with reference to some construct such as space and time. But uh, the point I'm making here is that the anatomy of um, many uh, brains, many phenotypes, does have the capacity to represent the consequences of looking everywhere at the same time at once before they have looked. So these are sort of um, sometimes referred to as salience maps, and we know that um, there are good candidates for these salience maps, for example, the deep layers of the superior colliculus, and one could argue um, possibly some anatomy of the pulvina. So if you look at the, um, the, if you like, the neuronal encoding of the salience of where, um, the salience of the next place to look, what's going to grab my attention in a, in a, and make that be manifest overtly with an eye movement to go and look over there, then there, you can interpret, I think, the anatomy, the oculomotor system, and especially the, um, th that which underlies uh, saccadic, the control of saccadic eye movements as entertaining a whole range, possibly millions of potential um, um, uh, plans of action and the consequences and then the brain literally selects the one that's most likely, uh, which you can simulate by doing bumper tractors on these sort of salience maps or representations of the, the salience or the epistemic affordance or the expected information gain. If I looked over here, I looked over here, I looked over here, I looked over here, you select that, your eyes jump over there and off you go again. So I think it's a great question. And in a sense speaks, I think, to a certain extent to what Mike was alluding to before, that there are certain setups or a certain sort of neuronal electrochemical um, infrastructures out there that can be read as just pursuing paths of least action in a reflexive way. And there are others that may have this um, richer structure, this deeper structure that could be uh, support the, you know, the, the, the active center and the sort of what I am reading now as cognition. If, if cognition entails planning, uh, then I certainly think there has to be an act of selection in play here. Um, selection, what does that mean? From something. From what? Well, multiple alternatives. And then we come back to the central notion of this, this counterfactual. Uh, yeah. uh, Mike, is that what you had in mind in terms of breaking this sort of uh, panpsychism uh, sort of trap, you know, the different kinds of, of self-organization? Yeah, I mean that's certainly certainly related. You know, uh, the thing the, the thing that um, I and, and and so I, I agree with Chris's uh, kind of uh, gut feeling on this. I find it very difficult to imagine cognition without some sort of awareness or or simple consciousness. However, what what strikes me as as d different and real about the hard problem is that unlike all the quote unquote easy problems, and maybe unlike the meta hard problem we kind of know the format or the shape of answers to those questions, right? They're either, they're numbers or they're equations or they're lists of capacities. You know, we, we, we know what, what a proper answer would look like. And yet I, I find it very hard to imagine if we, if somebody claimed to have a, a, a good theory of consciousness and I were to ask them, okay, well, what is the prediction of your theory in this particular case? I don't know what the format of the answer looks like. Because numbers and the typical things we get don't do the trick. They, they, you know, they're sort of third-person descriptions. And so, so is the answer? Does the answer come in the form of a poem? Is it art? Is it you know something you have to literally plug yourself into to then have that experience? Like, what's the? I, I find it different because I don't know what if we had a true a correct theory. I don't know what that theory would output. You know, unlike for all these other theories, where at least we have some idea of what the output looks like. Well, that's that's a meta answer to the hard problem. Then that's that's very good. I've heard that before. <laughs> yeah. 
I, I'm sure the answer is quantum physics. Uh, that's that's what it's going to look like. If, if we could if we could understand it, the, the answer will be in, in quantum physics. Hmm. Hmm. Chris, not. do you agree? Well, I I'd like to to back up a little bit, uh, and in a sense, play off what Carl was just saying about alternatives and the role of alternatives in the hard problem. Um, I mean, Chalmers drives his arguments about the hard problem with the alternative of unconsciousness. And this alternative makes great sense against the background of a particular set of assumptions about physics, uh, which is the assumption that nothing is going on cognitively in the physical world, that there's, that there's no reason to talk about uh, experience or awareness or, or anything like that when we're talking about uh, rocks or billiard balls or planets or electrons or anything else. And in, in that case, there is this cut <laughs> uh, that is not really a cut in scale, uh, spatial scale or temporal scale, but is in a sense a cut in some measure of complexity that suggests that below some cut point, which may be a bright line and, and may be a fuzzy area, who knows, there's the possibility, or below some cut point, there's, there's no awareness at all, none, <laughs> zero. And above that cut point, there's some possibility of awareness. And in that case, one's forced to say, uh, what, what could be added by complexity other than complexity to produce awareness? And it's that intuition, I believe, that drives the hard problem. Do you mind explaining that a bit more? What can be added by complexity that's not complexity, that sentence? Well, um, yeah, I, and one way to put it is complexity has, as complexity increases, some magic has to happen. And uh, you suddenly get awareness. And it's not clear quite how much complexity one has to add, but as soon as one reaches the, the right amount, then uh, out of the blue, you've got awareness. Whereas without crossing that threshold, you, ha you had no awareness whatsoever. So there's a zero point and the zero points somewhere on the scale of complexity, and it's nowhere near the bottom. <laughs> so I think one can I can think one can view a lot of research on consciousness as a way to escape that argument. So I'll consider integrated information theory. Uh, in integrated information theory, the criterion for consciousness or awareness is actually very simple. You, you need to have an internal feedback loop. 
And if you've got an internal feedback loop, you're at least a candidate for being aware, as long as you're not embedded in something bigger that has bigger internal feedback loops. And uh, if one thinks about uh, the work of Peter Strassen, for example, from a philosophical perspective, his arguments toward <clears throat> panpsychism are all arguments of the form, there's no way to draw the line in the scale of complexity and get a place where um, magic basically plausibly happens. So I think, I think Chalmers did a real service in, in posing the problem in that way because it forced us to think about this idea of magic, or you could call it emergence if you wanted to, of something completely new that was awareness. Now, I, I do agree with Carl that quantum theory can help us dispel the problem uh, by, by being, in effect, a theory that's about awareness. But we can, we can get to that farther down the road. Do you have any reason to believe that we're embedded in something larger? You mentioned in IIT there's the feedback loop that is necessary for consciousness, and you said that one is conscious as long as one is not embedded in something else that's of which that is conscious, like there's a larger feedback loop there. Do you see there being some larger feedback loop? Some people say the universe itself is conscious or that societies can act as some larger level consciousness, like with each of us acting as neurons in some sense. Well, I would certainly wouldn't want to rule that view out a priori. I mean, it's, it's obvious that we're embedded in, in much bigger systems. And I think we understand essentially nothing about the cognitive capacities of those systems. Yeah. Michael? Yeah, yeah. I, th I, th I think that's a really important question. And I, I think a lot about the perspective of, let's say, you know, if you were a neural network or something like this being trained and so on, what would the perspective of a sub- component of that be where you know let's, let's say if, if you had the capacity as a neuron to sort of look around and ask yourself you know do i do i live in a cold mechanical universe that doesn't care what happens or uh is there some some sort of uh, agency in my environment that you know am i when, when i'm as a, as a piece of that network am i am i learning from my environment or am i being trained right because when you're being trained right the real question is like how many how many um, agents are there in that interaction is it just you learning as you will you're the boss and you're sort of learning whatever from your environment or are you actually being trained because the environment is an agent with an agenda that is training you for some particular purpose right and so so this question of uh, how would you know so so you look around and you say, you say to yourself well if you're a piece of this uh, of this network and it's being trained for some image image recognition task, you know you you would be I, I think wrong to come to the conclusion that you live in a in a mechanical universe. You would you should come to the conclusion that it's actually it's it's clearly rewarding you and punishing you for for specific things. It's not neutral with respect to what you do. And for some reason, it really likes it when you find you know you find um, uh, pictures of dog eyes or something like this. And you have no idea that what it what it does is recognize dog faces out of you know all the other all the other inputs. So no doubt there's some kind of Gerdelian limit to, to, figure, to, to be able to actually understand what the larger system is doing. 
but I wonder if we can even have some evidence that uh, just just for the fact that yes, there is a greater you know sort of a, a gentle dynamic going on in which I'm caught up, even if you're not able to you know sort of comprehend what that's going to what that's going to be. I I, I don't know. I don't know what that's going to look like, but I think it's pretty important. And I think as as Chris said, we really don't have a very good science at all of trying to predict or control. Uh, the cognitive uh, capacities of systems made up of parts. So, so we can know many things about parts, uh, cells, robotics, whatever. And we routinely make these larger systems have, then, and then get surprised about what it does or doesn't do or what, what, what the goals are going to be, what goals is it capable of pursuing, what preferences does it have. This is probably an existential level um, job for, for society is to, is to get a good science of, of, that, of that going. You have done that, though, haven't you? Well, we've started, anyway. <laughs> I mean, you could you no, I, I would go further than that. I think, I think your work would represent a substantive and established um, formal framework to address exactly those, those issues. Um, and you can see your embryonic versions arising in many different fields. I just um, came back from a meeting... Um, of economists and financiers, and they are trying to make the move from behavioral economics to cognitive economics. And they were exactly addressing these kinds of issues. You're understanding the, um, the notion of distributed cognition in a market. Um, so, you know, and ultimately they'll, become knock, they'll come knocking at your door. Uh, you know, I can see that. I can see exactly the se sequence of people, um, you know, searching around for people to talk about. Um, illuminating that realization that, that the, I mean, it comes back to what we were talking about before, where you started, and you know, I was picking up on the um, on the the link between different scales of self organization, where every scale has you know complies with the same principles, but how does that contextualize? And I think one really interesting example of that um, is to think about an individual in an ensemble or, or a society. And just to wrestle the argument back to pick up on, on something that Chris was saying about, you know, you know if, if there is a bright line between the kind of um, mechanics that would qualify as um, conscious in the sense of being um, self-aware, and I'm distinguishing that from the kind of consciousness that would just entail qualitative experience, uh, you know, a, a loss of phenomenal uh, transparency. So, I'm talking about now self-awareness as you know one of one of the bright lines that may be very blurry, blurry and vague, but certainly one which is induced by uh, the hard problem. You know, just asking a simple question: you know, what kind of explanation for my world, whether I'm a single neuron or a single person, um, would um, enable me or justify the notion that I am a self? Um, and the obvious answer is um, when I have to disambiguate between the consequences of my action and your action, if you are very similar to me. So if I you know, manage to survive in, on an alien planet where there are no structures like, like me that could cause the same sensed consequences, uh, then there would be no problem inferring, did I cause that or did you cause that? So just having um, the existence of a population of conspecifics in some sort of formal structural sense suddenly induces the inference problem
problem? Did you cause that? Do I cause that? And of course, that naturally calls for generative models or internal dynamics representations on the inside um, that entertain the hypothesis and the notion that that's me as opposed to not me. So you get for free in and only in this context where you've put lots of these particles together, <clears throat> the, you know, the, if you like, the license or the motivation to have a, a hypothesis, um, you know, a representation of selfhood um, that you know, from the statistician's point of view is exactly the justification for the increased complexity that Chris was talking about. So I was, I was listening to that really interesting sort of, uh, um, sort of nod to IIT and all it brings to the table in terms of this sort of you know, uh, commitment to some threshold crossing or trans traversing a cut with increasing complexity, but why? I mean, one simple answer is that um, uh, you know, if you ask a statistician, what is complexity? And they'll tell you, well, um, it's basically the degrees of freedom you're using up to explain some sensory data. Um, you could articulate it as a KL or relative entropy between a post and a prior if you're a Bayesian, but in essence, it's just the degrees of freedom you're um, using in order to accurately explain these data. So mathematically, the evidence is equal to the accuracy minus the complexity. So why would you need, why, why is that useful? Well, an increase in complexity is only licensed by an increase in the accuracy. So the simple argument would go, um, if I am obliged to model and predict and explain a world um, that is constituted by other things like me, um, then the accuracy of my predictions will be greatly enhanced if I have a representation of me as distinct from you. And if that um, entails an increase in the degrees of freedom, namely adding in this extra kind of hypothesis and everything that it entails, then um, I'm going to have a, a greater complexity. But it's a complexity that is more than paid for by the, uh, by the increase, increase in the accuracy. And I, you know, just coming back to you know, my, my original point, um, yeah, I think a lot of the work um, that you've done at the cellular level um, would be very gracefully translated to the societal level and to things like economics and to mm. uh, eco-niche construction um, in ethology. Um, and I know uh, Chris has probably uh, wanted to say this, you know, but language as one way of facilitating that notion, that ability to, um, to efficiently, with minimum complexity in this instance, um, do this distributed cognition. So I'm both tra being trained and learning at the same time, and we're doing it together to evince some kind of generalized synchronous. Hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone 
of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. So I mentioned language for, for Chris there. <laughs> the fond hope he wants to pick that one up. Oh. Uh- well, well, again, what I'd actually like to do is back up a little bit and uh, put some of what you just said into very simple active inference language. Uh, if, if I see something happening on my Markov blanket, on my interface with the world, then I always have the question, uh, did I do that or did the world do that? where the world means everything outside me. And in a sense, the answer is always the world did it. So the question becomes, did the world do that in response to something I did to it? Or did it just do it? Not not in consequence of, of any of my actions. And so one gets immediately to this kind of babbling scenario that we've talked about many times uh, in which an infant or a robot or some system is trying to figure out by measuring correlations whether the world's inputs to it have anything to do with its inputs to the world. And just Asking that question requires enormous representative capacity uh, because one has to represent one's actions and represent them pretty well in time. And one has to have a good memory to represent enough actions to get any kind of statistical support for drawing an inference about correlation. And that memory has to be represented as a memory, uh, not just part of one's occurrent input. So I think this question that you posed is really the key question faced by any agent at all that's trying to get a model off the ground, uh, which which in a sense gets back to, to the question that Mike asked early, early on about how does this all start? Uh, maybe it starts with babbling in very simple systems. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I was thinking recently uh, that this, this, this whole issue of, of how many agents are there and where is the border between the agent and the world and how do you self-model that border is, is a fascinating topic. And there's, a, there's an amazing... Um, uh, developmental uh, model for this, uh, which is which is that you know we often talk about one embryo and the embryo does this and the embryo does that, but actually, what happens at the beginning? Let's say, for example, in amnio embryos, is that there's a there's a flat blastodisc which has just a few cell layers thick, so it's kind of think of it like a like a frisbee, and it just has a few cell layers. 
And normally what has to happen is that one point in this, in this disc breaks symmetry and then organizes the primary axis of the first embryo and basically tells all the other cells, don't do it because, because I'm doing it. And that's how you end up with one embryo. Now that process is very easily perturbed. And, and I, many people have done it. I used to do it in my, in my graduate work. And what you can do is if you perturb that process, that initial blastodisc, that undifferentiated sort of pool of, of cells, which are these sort of proto uh, low level proto uh, proto agents, that pool can break up into not one embryo, but actually multiple. And so you can have, so I did this in, in bird embryos and you can have twins and chicken and duck and things like this. You can have, and humans, humans have exactly the same structure. Um, you can get them head to head. You can have to get them side by side. You can get all sorts of geometries. You can get triplets. You can get multiple individuals arrive, emerging by different partitions of this, of this um, really kind of um, uh, medium, this particular medium where, where you have a bunch of cells and you don't know ahead of time how many individuals at the level of how many larger individuals, so embryos, are going to arise from this medium because the, the, the dynamics by which, and that's, you know, local activation and long range inhibition and things like that, the, the dynamics that break up that, that undifferentiated ocean of, of potential selves into one, two, or three or more selves is actually, um, it's, it's very dynamic. It, it, can, it can go different ways. And then you get interesting, interesting things like this. So for example, you might uh, know that human conjoined twins that are you know, sort of stuck together side to side, one of the twins often has left-right asymmetry defects. And it's because when you have two twins side by side, the cells in the middle, both twins can't quite agree on who they belong to. Are they the right side of this twin or are they the left side of that twin? And both twins think they belong to them, but in fact, they're overlapping the same cells. And so one side will have correct left and right. The other guy, the other side will have like two rights, for example. Right? And this ends up, this ends up giving one of the twins um, laterality defects with respect to heart and gut patterning. And so, so their models, each twins as, as the collective of cells tries to compute uh, things like which, which, where things are and what's left and what's right and so on, their models can disagree with each other. They can, they can draw the boundary between self and world in different ways. And you can have these um, sort of disputes over certain areas as to where, who they actually belong to. And, and so, so I'm just, I'm just incredibly interested in this, in this process of, of emerging, of, of individualization, so to speak, out of this like ocean of, of potentiality, these cells, you know, 50,000 cells, and some number of individuals at the um, at the embryo level will be formed, and each of them will have specific goals in morphospace. Each of them will try to achieve very specific morphologies, uh, and uh, and they've and then you don't know ahead of time how many there were going to be. You know, Carl, what occurs to you when you hear that? Um, ambiguity um, again, sort of. Um... Just thinking about the, the imperatives for self-organization. So when I hear that, that was a fascinating story. Um, and don't let me forget, we ought to explain to the viewers what babbling means just mm. in this context as well, because that's, uh, I think, quite illuminating. Perhaps we can. I'm not sure that the cells do mo do motor babbling, um, but they mm. certainly resolve um, the same kind of problem. Um, so, my, um, Chris, correct me if I'm wrong, but by babbling, all we mean is that when you're first born into any universe, you've got to... Um, work out or test the hypothesis that I caused that or the world caused that. Um, so you don't know, you don't have a self model, you don't you know whether this is sort of a, um, a declarative model or completely subpersonal, just um, hardwired into the, um, the synaptic efficacy and connectivity of your brain. So the first thing you have to do is just to work out 
what you can control and what you can't control. Um, and the idea is that you you um, engage in um, what I would call epistemic uh, or respond to epistemic affordances or epistemic plans that reveal knowledge. They resolve uncertainty. And in this instance, it's the uncertainty about whether um, I was the cause of this rattle rattling. So if you imagine um, motor babbling um, as um, manifest in a little baby um, you know, rattling its rattle, generating both the sensations from the muscles and the skin, but also the visual and the auditory sensations all co-occur, providing definitive evidence that there's something special about this process and this event that, um, that provides the basis for the hypothesis there's a unitary cause. There's a unitary cause, which is me shaking the rattle. But of course, it may take several months, if not years, to actually get there, to actually realize that causes me. So one can imagine sort of, you know, robots learning about the, uh, the manipulanda that they can articulate or the, the way in which they can move around and, you know, um, perambulate. Um, but the, I think the idea, bringing it back to sort of where does selfhood come from, um, it, it would, it would um, rest upon the, testing the hypothesis, which has to be physically represented with a deep, more complex generative model and sense-making, um, that in fact, it's me that's actually caused this single cause of all these proprioceptive um, motor sensations, visual sensations, auditory sensations. Um, and that will be especially prescient when you're starting to realize that some of these causes, which you thought were you, of the sort associated with nurturing and suckling, um, were actually due to mum. And we come back to this argument to, to actually have a good hypothesis, which explains why I am not in charge of mum, because she is now not always responding to me when I cry. Mm -hmm. you know, to, have, to explain that, I have to now develop a hypothesis. Yes, it was me causing all of this, um, but sometimes there's something else, else out there that's not me, but very much like me, and that's mum. And then you can see how there would be a, a pressure in terms of you know, finding the best explanations for your sensations to, to have that. So if you take that notion now, think of the <clears> same <throat> problem uh, from the point of view of a cell. Um, you know, what are the imperative of a bunch of cells that have to work together or will ultimately form a, uh, an embryo via this process of symmetry breaking, you, you know, you have to ask, what are the underlying imperatives? How, how could it be any other way? Um, and of course, it could be, well, Mike is saying it could be lots of ways, but the ways, the ways in which it goes wrong, um, which would be another way of saying um, those rare occasions or the, the, the ways that it doesn't happen in, in, um, in consequence of their rarity, um, involve this ambiguity again, you know, literally in, this, in the context of some cells not knowing whether they're on, you know, belonging to one twin or, or another twin from the, from the cell's perspective. Um, so um, I was just thinking about the nature of ambiguity. And of course, the, you know, it is exactly the same. Um, one can account for the simple observation that self-organization does not tolerate ambiguity, it does not tolerate uncertainty. It, it's only um, manifest in the context of accurate 
and um, well-evidenced, definitive uh, exchanges. So I come back to Chris's notion of you know, sense-making, projecting onto my Markov blanket or my holographic screen from the point of view of the uh, quantum formulation, then I need to resolve all the uncertainty, uh, as much uncertainty as I can, but put that another way, um, in a more, slightly more deflationary way, stuff which we see, the way the universe seems to work, is um, can be described as um, realizing processes that minimize this, uh, this kind of uncertainty and ambiguity and simply maximize the neutral predictability of what's being projected or impressed upon my surface or my holographic screen or my Markov blanket. Uh, so, I, you know, I, that's what I, that was going through my mind. I thought it was a beautiful example of, of you know, uh, when it goes wrong, there's uncertainty and ambiguity you know, in the game. And, uh, and that tells you something quite fundamental about when it goes right. And when it goes right, it's just basically um, a statement of what exists and what, you know, what, what perseveres uh, you know, over time. Chris, did you have anything to say to, to add to that? Well, I would be interested to uh, to see how actually uh, Mike responds to that uh, discourse with respect to the example of this embryonic sheet where the cells are each trying to figure out what they're supposed to do. Uh, and As someone immersed in the exploration of physics, consciousness, and math, I recognize the importance of supporting my body and my mind. This journey of discovery led me to a remarkable find, Mosh Bars. Mosh is a venture by Maria Shriver and Patrick Schwarzenegger and is at the forefront of blending nutrition with a mission to foster brain health awareness. With six mouth-watering flavors, there's a taste for just about every palate, even a selection of plant-based options for those preferring vegan nutrition. Personally, I found the chocolate sea salt flavor to be a delightful addition to my day, post-workout especially. In fact, I recorded myself biting into a bar for the first time. Mmm. How's the flavor? Mmm. It's great. That was real. If you want to find ways to give back to others and fuel your body and your brain at the same time, Mosh Bars are a great choice for you. Head to moshlife.com slash toe to save 20% off plus free shipping on either the Best Sellers Trial Pack or the new plant-based trial pack. That's 20% off plus free shipping on either the best sellers or plant-based trial pack at M-O-S-H-L-I-F-E dot com slash T-O-E. Thank you to Mosh for sponsoring this video. Razor blades are like diving boards. The longer the board, the more the wobble, the more the wobble, the more nicks, cuts, scrapes. A bad shave isn't a blade problem, it's an extension problem. Henson is a family-owned aerospace parts manufacturer that's made parts for the International Space Station and the Mars rover. Now they're bringing that precision engineering to your shaving experience. By using aerospace-grade CNC machines, Henson makes razors that extend less than the thickness of a human hair. The razor also has built-in channels that evacuates hair and cream, which make clogging virtually impossible. Henson Shaving wants to produce the best razors, not the best razor business. So that means no plastics, no subscriptions, no proprietary blades, and no planned obsolescence. 
it's also extremely affordable. The Henson razor works with the standard dual edge blades that give you that old school shave with the benefits of this new school tech. It's time to say no to subscriptions and yes to a razor that'll last you a lifetime. Visit hensonshaving.com everything. If you use that code, you'll get two years worth of blades for free. Just make sure to add them to the cart. Plus 100 free blades when you head to H-E-N-S-O-N-S-H-A-V-I-N-G dot com slash everything and use the code everything. There's there's still, uh, they still certainly believe that they should be reproducing. So they, they definitely do that and they signal to each other. But somehow they're, the collective effect of all of that signaling to each other is to organize different roles for them, for each, for themselves. So how does the symmetry breaking occur? Yeah. So, so that's, that's really interesting. So as I, as I was hearing um, Carl talk about this, I realized a couple of things that um, first of all, uh, as, as we were saying before, feedback loops are absolutely central to this process because the easiest way to prevent any of this from happening and to end up with a uh, uh, um, kind of a mono, um, you know, sort of, uh, uh, you know, a, a very featureless sheet where there are no embryos is to block that, is to block the positive feedback loop. That, yeah, so, so that long, that, that short range inhibition, long range activation that says to one cell, I'm going to now be the organizer. I'm going to make this axis. Everybody else don't do it. You, th those are both feedback loops. And so if you break those feedback loops, you get nothing. So, so the feedback loops are right at the beginning of this process. And, and the other thing that, that I thought was really interesting that Carl just said is about the cells babbling. So what I think uh, it's a really good name for what we see when you take a cell and you put it out into a dish. What you'll see, you'll, and, and in fact, in any, in any new environment, you will see two things that I think are probably babbling in different spaces. One is that in physical space, you will see that it's incredibly active. It's constantly putting out and pulling back these, these um, kind of extensions. So these cytoplasmic extensions that have all kinds of sensors on them, they're not just sitting, the cell is never just sitting there waiting for something to happen. It's constantly probing its environment. It's incredibly active. I'm sure it's taking all kinds of energy uh, costs to, to do all this. Um, there are videos of it that are just remarkable on, on, online and you know we see them every day. The other, the other babbling takes place in transcriptional space. So gene expression is also never just sort of still, and this is, you know, the, these are the genes that are expressed, and I'm just going to sit here and, and do that. All the genes are constantly going up and down within specific ranges as it sort of wiggles in this transcriptional space. And I think both of them, and probably physiologically, metabolically, I bet, I bet this is going on in all these other spaces. And I think babbling is an excellent uh, uh, framework for, for understanding what it's actually doing. It's actually taking these little actions, looking for evidence of specific things that it can then make use of to start to draw, you know, to draw boundaries. And, and as Chris, as Chris was saying, I think what happens is that in this blastoderm, you get, uh, what, 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 what will happen is that once, once that, that individuation starts where there's a specific cell that starts to go down this road of, uh, being the organizer of this new larger collective, it immediately begins to distort the action space for all the nearby cells. It starts putting out all kinds of signals, reward, you know, reward signals and, and, and physical forces and all these other things that now are going to bend the, uh, the option for all the other cells. And the best example of that we have are these xenobots where the, these things are just made of uh, embryonic skin cells. And if you look at a standard old embryo, you get this idea that, well, what do skin cells want to do? They want to be a passive 
two-dimensional layer on the outside of the animal. They do nothing except sit there, keep out the bacteria, you know, nice and a boring two-dimensional life. But what you find out is that that's only true because the other cells are basically bullying them into it, left to their own devices with the, in, in the absence of these instructive interactions with the rest of the embryo. What, they, what the skin cells actually want to do is get together into a three-dimensional uh, kind of uh, ball-like uh, architecture. They are self-motile that, you know, they'll run around and move and do very, have various behaviors, including make copies of themselves if provided with materials. And so that is completely um, kind of obscured by standard development, where what you're seeing actually is, is cells in a space that was really deformed by, by all their neighbors, right? And that's, you know, that kind of process that, that, that starts to, you know, make, the, make those distinctions where the embryo, the embryo can tell what part, uh, what parts are inside and what parts are supposedly outside of itself. And that, that gets reinforced by all these early activities. <clears throat> Carl or, or Chris, do you want to jump in on that? I think, I think we've been describing psychos that says basically that it's curiosity all the way down. Mm. Every yeah, system that, is trying to figure out what's going on. I was struck with that, with this image of the you know, little cells putting out fingers. You know, this is expiration, you know, sort of true blue expiration. And, and, and mathematically, it's simply, as Chris says, it's um, well, <coughs> what, what <coughs> artificial intelligence um, research aspires to, which is artificial curiosity, you know, the, you know, going out there, getting the right kind of data um, that's going to maximally resolve your uncertainty and paint the way, the, the way forward. And of course, it's <clears throat> intimately related to planning in the sense you have to um, realize that palpation, you know, whether it's a little cell palpating with its filia or podia or um, whether it's me palpating my visual world by moving my eyes around, or whether it's the, um, the little baby babbling and palpating its cot, this 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 palpation has to be planned. It could be planned in the sense of the gazelle, sorry, the, not the gazelle, the cheetah chasing the gazelle. Uh, so it doesn't have to be very sophisticated cognitive conscious planning, but certainly has to has to be planned. It has to have this sort of curious behaviour, um, and it, it you know. It just strikes me that that is such a fundamental um, aspect that I think um, would qualify behaviours that have that aspect as cognitive in some sense. Mm -hmm. And it's so fundamental because, of course, it's, it's just an expression of dynamics that apply to um, action upon the world um, that underwrite everything that we do as certainly as scientists and one could imagine as, as, as human beings, but certainly as scientists, you know, the, the maths of curiosity was, was actually worked out um, by Dennis Lindley in the 1950s um, in terms of expected information gain and then reintroduced by people like David McKay in the context of active learning. So bringing this active notion that you can learn by actively acquiring the right kind of data that optimizes that kind of learning. Uh, and it became known as um, <clears throat> um, the uh, principles of optimum Bayesian experimental design. So it's exactly the same kind of curiosity that we as scientists use all the time whenever we design an experiment. It's basically configuring, actively configuring mm -hmm. some process to generate something that can be sensed or measured that, that maximally resolves our uncertainty or affords the greatest amount of information. So, you know, uh, the three of us as scientists uh, have become um, 
experts at this kind of formal curiosity simply you know, just by acquiring uh, knowledge about in the, in the particular paradigms or setups and the fields that we find ourselves in, the right way to do experiments. But you could argue that that's life. You know, in a sense, that is the, the infant bubbling. Uh, it, it is you know, it, it, that kind of sense-making and getting, actively getting the right kind of data to work out your place in the world, uh, to work out what you, know, what you should do next is one of the most existentially important imperatives. Um, and you know, I was struck at you know, by the mechanics that Mike was talking about in terms of the, you know, uh, the, the little skin cells left to their own devices, have, having a party and forming balls and wandering around. I mean, you know, one could apply that kind of mechanics to people, can't, couldn't you? Or even, even cultures and, and countries. We're all trying to find our place. And we're all trying to work out how to respond to those constraints, people around us at many different scales, um, um, you know, put on our behaviour and try and infer, well, how am I meant to behave in this situation? As someone immersed in the exploration of physics, consciousness and math, I recognize the importance of supporting my body and my mind. This journey of discovery led me to a remarkable find, Mosh Bars. Mosh is a venture by Maria Shriver and Patrick Schwarzenegger and is at the forefront of blending nutrition with a mission to foster brain health awareness. With six mouth-watering flavors, there's a taste for just about every palate, even a selection of plant-based options for those preferring vegan nutrition. Personally, I found the chocolate sea salt flavor to be a delightful addition to my day, post-workout especially. In fact, I recorded myself biting into a bar for the first time. Mmm. How's the flavor? Mmm. It's great. That was real. If you want to find ways to give back to others and fuel your body and your brain at the same time, Mosh Bars are a great choice for you. Head to moshlife.com slash toe to save 20% off plus free shipping on either the Best Sellers Trial Pack or the new plant-based trial pack. That's 20% off plus free shipping on either the Best Sellers or plant-based trial pack at M-O-S-H L-I-F-E dot com slash T-O-E. Thank you to Mosh for sponsoring this video. So even if we all start off with the same genetic code and the same sort of model of, you know, how people behave, the context in which we find ourselves now needs to be inferred in order to have to know how to behave in this context, either as a child or as a mother, or as a politician, or as an aid worker, or a first responder, whatever you want. You have to make that inference. And of course, that inference, inferring that context, requires the curious behavior that, 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 uh, that Chris had picked up on, on the, in, in Mike's example. Hmm. Wow. Could, 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 you know, what I'd love to hear is uh, each of you talk about um, <clears throat> what is the simplest, most basic uh, thing. So, you know, hopefully going down to like physics prior to life, but, but wherever you like, what is the most basic thing that is able to do that? Because that's what I find in, in, in talking about this stuff to other communities. The thing that people are the most resistant to is this idea that these kind of dynamics, this, this kind of uh, exploration, curiosity, prediction, all of these things that we're talking about that, you, you know, people, people think it's, it's brains first, and then you can do all these 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 great things. I I, I would love to hear um, you know what you think is the simplest physical system that can do that kind of thing, so that we can talk about how far down it actually goes. 
while Chris is thinking about that with a profound answer, I'll give you a, a, not a trivial answer, but a formal um, answer. Uh, I, I think it's um, you'd have to identify the um, the depth of planning um, that underwrote the, the the dynamics of the behaviour of the system um, in question, um, and that would be basically. If you were putting this in a sort of pathological formulation, it would be the sort of the the amount of time over which you are integrating your paths and you're evaluating the best way forward. Um, once you move, once you move from uh, very short time scales, um, then the depth of that planning, I think, eludes um, physical realizations that could be written down in terms of. Um, um, representations in terms of concentrations and uh, um, um, depolarizations and the like. Um, and one has to move to a, a quantal discrete time representation. So, you know, uh, I guess I'm basically make, making the difference between the sort of, um, the, 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 the kind of dynamics you'd find in a, uh, in chemotaxis or a thermostat, um, that could be written down as differential equations. In fact, Mike, you know, the kind of differential equations we used in one of those early um, pattern formation papers and knowing your place uh, approaches, um, where everything could be articulated in terms of differential equations so that there is a kind of planning, but it's not of the curious kind that we talked about. It's just following the most, most likely paths of, of least action. So I would say that they're not cognitive in the sense that they, they have planning. Um, so I put chemotaxis and thermostats and possibly most viruses probably at a precognitive um, or protocognitive level. But as soon as you get to um, um, generative models that can roll out deep into the future, and I, I repeat, just when you try and implement this in silico, you, you know, using computer simulations, you really have to move to a discrete time representation, um, which I think is a non-trivial thing. I mean, just for example, remember the sort of the eye movement example. Yeah, we sense make by getting little snapshots of the world every 250 milliseconds. Uh, it's not like I've got, uh, I am a thermostat and I'm taking a continuous record of the temperature. That is a continuous, I'm actually getting discrete quantal observations. Um, and I think once you move to that kind of generative model or biophysics that entails um, the gradient flows under that generative model, um, then I think you're in a position to talk about sort of planning and cognition and curiosity of the kind that we're talking about. Uh, so I, you know, I'd literally put time constants on this. I, I'd say about you know 300 milliseconds. If you've got the ability to represent the future, 300 milliseconds in, in, in you know, it, sorry, represent the consequences of your actions more than 300 milliseconds in the future, then I put you in. You know, having crossed that one of those uh, cuts. Um, uh, in, uh, and move from from being a sort of um, yeah a virus to, to you know to, to to I don't know perhaps an insect I'm not sure perhaps you had to go are you seriously putting the 300 milliseconds forward or like or is that facetious? Um, it's it's facetious, but uh, but not as facetious as it might as you might think. I do think that there. Yeah, I think there's a there's one way of celebrating the um, 
the escapes from panpsychism that we started off with when you know when Mike was saying what he spends his time talking about one of the ways is to commit to vagueness and you know how many um, how many grains of sand do I need before this ceases or becomes a pile um, and try and work out what the uh, what the quantity is uh, that defines that spectrum that we were talking about before uh, along which there is vagueness at some point uh, consciousness of a certain kind um, um, arises um, but I also think there are natural kinds that, that actually have bright lines between them um, and you know what I'm saying here, and I, I don't think I've said it before, and I probably wouldn't say it again, um, uh, but um, unless I've simulated it, uh, but there's certainly in my experience qualitatively different kinds of generative models that represent time in very, very different ways. You can get so mathematically things like Kalman filters that can be cast or linear quadratic control in robotics and, uh, uh, and the like that can be cast purely in terms of futures that are represented in terms of velocities and accelerations and higher order motions that are just in the dynamics and the equations of motion. Uh, and you can realize and build these things, you can simulate them and they behave uh, in a very plausible way. You can get them to do handwriting, you can get them to sort of self-organize and do all sorts of interesting things a la thermostat. Um, but that's, um, that's as far as it goes. These things don't show curious behavior. To do curious behavior, you've really got to roll out much further into the future. Um, and in rolling out further into the future, it's very difficult to represent the future just using differential equations unless you move to very, very high orders of motion, uh, at which point you start to sort of, um, to minimize that complexity, start to articulate things in discrete time. And then the maths, sorry, the maths, the new, um, the um, numerics become much simpler and doable. Um, and um, uh, but then you've got a qualitatively different kind of generative model. You move from a continuous to a discrete time, a, quant a quantized generative model. Um, so that for me is not uh, does not allow a vagueness. It, you know, there is actually a, a natural kind that will represent things in the moment in terms of flows and dynamics and other natural kinds that will represent things uh, in terms of discrete, not universal clock time, but discrete iterations. Um, and I'm saying that the, you know, for, for certainly our scale of interactions and the way that we sense make, I would have thought 300 milliseconds was not a controversial. Um, I say that because that's the cognitive moment. It's also the time interval between the way that we sample the world, not just with our eyes, but when we sniff, we sniff at a frequency, which means that each new sampling of that world, that palpation with our chemoreceptors and olfactory receptors is again every, you know, uh, every 200 milliseconds. So, so just to me, there's a sort of discrete belief updating. Um, and if it's a discrete belief updating that is underwritten by the way we act, the, the plans have to be in these discrete chunks of time. So that's where the 300 second, milliseconds come from. You see it everywhere. Mice whisking, they whisk at, at, at that frequency. So they touch and palpate every 300 milliseconds. The way I'm speaking now, every phoneme is reaching your ears every 300 milliseconds or so, or, uh, um, or possibly less. So wherever you look in our biological scale, that does seem to be this sort of characteristic uh, time stamp. That's purely empirical. So the facetious aspect inherits from the fact that that's, that's very egocentric. It's just for things like me. I don't know if it's for things like cells or 
quantum physics. <laughs> well, it's interesting because in physics, the number three has an interesting role in fundamental physics because there's three generations of of matter and there's the number three crops up and it's a mystery as to why. So it sounds like the number 300 or 300 milliseconds, a unit attached to it for neuroscience, maybe a, a fundamental constant. So Chris, what are some of the deep thoughts that you were having? Well, I, I was just having a visual impression actually when Mike was talking and um, of, of babbling and the visual impression was of our, our sort of model of the quantum vacuum. And uh, when we think of, when we think of the vacuum, uh, or at least I think of it uh, visually as, as little things popping in and out of existence all the time. And so one could think of that as a, as a kind of babbling, right? The, the, the field itself is exploring what's going on outside of itself. That's extremely um, interesting. By uh, forming a little entity to go off and, and explore and then report back. So this is a, this is a very different picture from the one that, that Carl gave in that, uh, but I, I suppose it also has a similarity or two, that when we write down uh, a, a model of that activity, it is discrete. It is operating in, in, in a discrete <clears throat> kind by generating discrete events, even though it's, it's modeled in a continuous space-time, which uh, once one digs a little bit deeply, the continuous space-time itself becomes discrete. But this raises a question for me, which is another of the things that I think about a lot, um, which is the question of what we mean by randomness. And certainly to take a Bayesian point of view where probabilities are all subjective, uh, it becomes very difficult to say what randomness might mean if, if used in a way that's meant to be objective or to refer to something objective. And we model things like fluctuations in the vacuum as random, uh, which from a, a Bayesian point of view just means it's uncertain to us. It, it represents information that we don't have and quite possibly can't get even in principle. But if we think of that system as an agent, then of course we're expected to be exploring its world, whatever it is, whatever uh, exists that's not it. And maybe uh, we can really think of babbling all the way down as a model of, of what's happening in these phenomena that we persist in thinking of as random. Uh, but we also don't typically think of these sorts of systems as agents. This is, this is, this is incredibly interesting. Um, what, I heard, what I heard Carl saying, among other things, is that there, 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 is, a, uh, there is a qualitative transition when things go from analog to digital in a certain sense. 
right? From, from, from continuous to, to, to phased. And based on what Chris just said, it would just remind us to, to think about the kind of the quantum world where, at least to my understanding, a lot of things are in fact, uh, you know, sort of discrete. Does that mean that really, could it be that that, that is the sort of base state as Chris just outlined with, with, with that kind of proto-cognitive exploration all, all the way down? And that these continuous models that we put on top of it by 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 coarse graining, um, you know, tiny events into the kind of macroscopic things that we see here, that's that's an abstraction that sort of loses the essential uh, uh, mindfulness of it, and then we have to try to rebuild it again by the time we get to brains. But actually, all we've done is obscure the the fact that all the way from the beginning it was already digital to start with, and we just sort of uh, put some put some Vaseline on our lens here, you know, to make everything look um, you know sort of continuous, which then which then made it look like there was nothing going on at the lower levels, and then and then somehow we're we're shocked that we have to recover it from from somewhere later on. That that's that's what I just heard from the combination of those two um, explanations. It's a very interesting idea, and it connects nicely to the history of mathematics. <laughs> or at least mm. the history of mathematics post Descartes and Leibniz, which was all built around the idea of continuous functions and analysis and calculus and so on. Very, very nice, convenient mathematics to use. But uh, obscurant in a certain way. Carl, did you have any thoughts to add to that? Um, yeah, I, I probably, um, this is why I wanted to hang out with, with Mike and Chris to learn about quantum theory, because I do think there's something fundamental about this sort of, you know, the way that we carve up the world or the world, the way the world can only be defined in a carved way into tiles or quanta or, or discrete things. Um, so, um, I, I think that the, 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 those observations that we just heard, I, I think, are quite fundamental, um, and it would be great to understand um, everything from a sort of uh, quantal perspective or discretized perspective, and how continuous constructs like you know, space and time emerge from that, um, you know, if necessary. Um, having said that, um, I have to say that um, as a physicist, I would bring something else to the table. So I'm, I'm quite comfortable dealing with random fluctuations. So for me, random fluctuations are, are just variables that change very, very quickly. So if I want to write down um, as a physicist, so now I, and I'm talking about a physicist that doesn't know anything about quantum mechanics. Um, so I just want to write down a Langevin equation to describe my universe. Um, I write it as a mixture of states and random fluctuations. And somebody asked me, what license is that? I just thought, well, the random fluctuations are very, very quick and the, uh, the states are very, very slow. Um, and this is just a natural consequence of um, some kind of renormalization group. You know, I, I, I could uh, make them even slower by going to the next state, scale and throw some even more fast stuff. So there's nothing really, if you like, um, problematic uh, from the point of view of that kind of physicist um, in, in the random fluctuations. Um, uh, it just means that all the stuff that determines flows and dynamics of the kind that we can, um, that we engage with and we can plan um, has a particular form. And that particular form um, does actually bring a quantal aspect um, to the table or a discretization uh, aspect of the table that may or may not be, if you like, um, 
explained away or absorbed into a quantum information theoretic treatment. But what I'm talking about here um, are the mathematical image of life cycles and biorhythms and oscillations. And I mean that right from the, you know, the, the perspective of a dendrite in my hippocampus oscillating away at, at a fast gamma frequency, you know, sort of, um, say, 80 hertz, through to the, the, the motion of the heavenly bodies. Wherever you look, you get the, this um, solenoidal flow um, that is characteristic of things that hang around and don't dissipate almost immediately. Um, uh, and these are not part of the random fluctuation, but they become more evident as you go away from the fast random stuff into the slow, um, the slow uh, dynamics um, in the sense that, you know, clearly uh, the orbit of the moon around, the, well, the orbit of the Earth around the sun, for example, this deals with very, very massive, large things where all the random fluctuations are effectively averaged to zero. Um, whereas if you go down to the quantum scale, um, then you know, you're not licensed to do that, and these solenoidal flows um, become much less, um, much less apparent. But our, our scale, if we are, if life is um, on this reading of physics um, um, sufficiently classical to have um, oscillations, biorhythms, um, things that would you need for feedback that didn't go off to plus or minus infinity, for example, just saying that you're keeping, you're circulating in some state or phase space in a way that you keep yourself to some attracting set. And as you move through this, you are naturally going to be oscillating uh, you know, in a highly nonlinear, possibly chaotic way, but still the essence is life cycles. If that's the case, then the Poncari section does indeed permit a description that is necessarily discretized in the sense you're going to pass through the neighborhood of various states at discrete points in time um, um, uh, recurrently. Um, so that's what I was thinking from the point of view of a physicist who, who does not have the fluency of quantum mechanics to get back to a discrete thing. But it also, I think, um, highlights the, um, the deep connection between things recurring discreetly or occurring uh, discreetly um, 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 being one way of defining another characteristic of, of uh, biological self-organization, which is basically, you know, I repeat, biorhythms and, and life cycles uh, that have this sort of self-contained itinerancy. And of course, in that self-containment, you've got this natural resolution of ambiguity and uncertainty because you always know you're on, you're on the same itinerant path repeatedly visiting the states that you've once occupied. So that, that, that's what I would say from the point of view of a physicist. I may say something very different in a few years' time when I've learned more about quantum theory. So let me ask Chris, could, could you ever describe that kind of physicist's treatment of dynamics in, in pure quantum information theory at that, at that kind of scale? Well, I, I think if we if we try to think of scaling up from from um, descriptions of things like quantum fields, then this looks impossible. But uh, if we think of it informationally, maybe it doesn't look impossible. I'll uh, I'll go back to John Wheeler's notion that a bit is fundamentally the answer to a yes or no question. And 
information. The information theory is about bits and systems that exchange bits. But what? Do you mind repeating that last part? But what? What Wheeler's aphorism doesn't specify is the complexity of the question that has a yes or no answer. So in, in your case, Carl, you have an oscillatory system that passes after a discrete time of particular boundary. So the, the system may well be asking the question, have I passed this boundary? And the answer is yes or no, or am I passing the boundary right now? Well, that's one bit. Uh, that's a yes or no question, but it's an extremely complicated question. So it may be that we can develop uh, a theory that leaves the complexity of the generative model unspecified and concentrates just on the bit flow across the boundary that counts as evidence in one direction and perturbative action in the other direction. And, and then I think the two pictures fit together rather nicely because one can imagine the generative model operating it, that the generative model being the model that generates the questions um, operating at many different scales. Where, where one could think of the scales as computational complexity. And this gets back in a sense to your question about language. Uh, language is a way of posing questions. Uh, it's a way of babbling in the world. Now this process of babbling, it seems to me, as far as I understand, it's like poking and prodding to test your own self-model to see what's the difference between me and the world. It sounds like that never stops, even though we call it babbling as if infants do it. Does it ever stop? Are we not engaging in this right now? And I like this phrase, babbling all the way down. I'm going to put that on a t-shirt, by the way, Chris. Or And it also, by the way, <laughs> seems like babbling all the way up, too, because we're constantly engaging in this. So firstly, is that true? Does babbling have an end? And, and also, does it not presume a self in order to test the self? What I mean is, Carl, when you were speaking about the process of babbling, it's the infant doing something on the world in order to make a model. But that, that first part where it's, it's, it is doing something to the world, to me, already presumes the external world. Whereas the way that I'm understanding it is that the self is a model, but it's also, in your point of view, it's something objective. And I believe from my readings of Chris, I, don't, I believe Chris is more on the non-dual end where it's, 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 that's less the case. So I'm unsure. Anyway, I just said a slew. So please respond to it as you, as you wish. Right. Well, I mean, just to um, dispel the notion that the self is um, objective. No, I, I, I didn't mean that. I, I meant it exactly the same way that um, I think both Chris and Mike have been intimating that, you know, from the inside of a cell or a person or, or the baby's skull, um, 
your self um, is you know, quite a, a sophisticated um, construct, um, you know, fantasy hypothesis um, that is physically realized, possibly neuronally, in some lucky creatures and some lucky children. Uh, you may actually find some children never get that far. You know, I'm thinking here of people with severe autism, for example, who don't have a, a theory of mind simply because they never developed the notion that um, um, I am a person. Um, and, you know, what comes along with that is that, you know, if you've got very, very severe autism or, you know, if you like, sort of a theoretically idealised autism, um, that means that personhood doesn't exist. So you would be, uh, I would regard you as an animate fridge or, you know, uh, some um, uh, interesting autonomous vehicle, but you would never be a person because I don't, I don't have the hypothesis that, you know, there are people out there and that people share certain sort of phenotypic characteristics and um, have intentions in the same sense that I have intentions. So I just, I'm not aware of that because I just don't, don't have that hypothesis. So you know, it's a long-winded way of saying that I didn't mean to imply any objectivity here. I was more going the other way, really. I'm just saying that selfhood, um, uh, that would be one part of consciousness. And if you want to associate cognition and consciousness, then perhaps possibly um, that kind of minimum selfhood would, you know, would be necessarily part of, um, of cognition. This is a gift that you have to get by crossing one of those bright lines. Um, and it's just a fantasy that you bring to the table to make sense of uh, all the impressions on, on your sort of sensory surface or your holographic screen or your, or your cell surface or, or sorry, the receptors you are equipped with um, to sense what's going on out there. Does that make sense? Yeah, I know that Mike and, and Chris, you may have a response to that, but I just want to quickly respond to what Professor Friston was saying. Is So, and this is to both of you, how do you then prevent an existential crisis as you start to study this? So, for example, Carl, before you and I were speaking, and I told you about some experiences I had where I've deeply felt what you're saying is being true, that the self is a fantasy and this oneness with all this world being generated in one's mind. And I, I felt like that was akin to a psychotic episode. And it was extremely destabilizing. And to be quite frank, I'm, I'm still recovering from that. And so I'm unsure how any of you all do this work without constantly being in a de debilitating state of, of existence. Well, existence is the question here. And it's an existential crisis, which I'm inquiring about. So how is it that you prevent yourself from getting into that? How could you say these words of, well, the self is is not objective, the self may be a, a fantasy, quote unquote, but not then be able to to not speak and, and look around you in awe and, and horror at the same time? Okay, so that's a psychological and philosophical question. Anyone who wants to mm -hmm. take that up? I, th I think there is a good deal of existential, um, what, uncertainty involved in uh in doing what we're doing. So it's just par for the course. Right. How do you get over it? I'm not sure one gets over it. I, I, I think it's more, um, being comfortable with it. You know, I I I, th I think you raise a really a really important point, and it's I think this is in a class of 
uh, a number of really destabilizing um, uh, ideas that one picks up as, as one gets older and studies things. And, and there are many of these. I remember as a, as a child being completely freaked out by the fact that I realized that, you know, we grow up and we become these adults these adults bear uh, some resemblance to the children, but they're definitely not the same thing. And so in some sense, you could sort of see it coming. It's almost even, even before you realize that you're going to, you know, you're going to, you're going to die biologically someday before long before that, you realize that you're going to undergo some transition that's going to, you know, turn you into a completely different sort of creature, which really, you know, has some continuity, but maybe not, you know, certainly not you persisting in the same way as you are now, right? So some kind of weird butterfly, you know, caterpillar butterfly effect where mm, you're just not going to be around in that same way as, as you are now, right? So that's kind of the first thing you you realize as a child. And then, and then there's many others that sort of, you know, you learn about Boltzmann brains and all the different, you know, Humean arguments of, but, you know, all this stuff that, you know, I had to, I, I did, um, I did a, a philosophy class with my son when he was little. Uh, uh, we were doing um, homeschooling. And so I kind of did this. And I realized very quickly that I have to be very careful with this stuff because if you write somebody who has the capacity to understand it, it's extremely destabilizing. And I think that uh, at this point for myself, I, what, what, you know, I sort of go with, with Descartes a little bit in the following sense. I, I, I'm, I'm not depressed by it in the sense that whatever we discover is, is a truer model of the self than we may have had. It doesn't, it, I, I don't, I don't think there's any way in which it makes it less um, it makes us less, less, less valuable, less interesting, less engaging. All of that is still true. It's just that now we've realized that a different set of mechanisms can now implement that magic than we thought. Right. So you may have had so you know, some sort of um, idea that, well, there has to be some sort of, um, a different kind of unique process that makes this permanent self, and therefore I'm this individual, and I have, I have, uh, uh, you know, I have um, true, true uh, beliefs and preferences, and and I exist in some way. I, I don't think you can ever convince yourself that you that 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 isn't true, and that you don't exist. It's just that now you find out that actually the way you get to be that is by these sets of mechanisms. And they're very interesting. It's the sort of thing that Carl and Chris have been talking about. So that's what gets you to be this individual, this kind of individual. And it's kind of amazing that that works, but that doesn't, to me, that doesn't um, diminish all of the thing, all of the things that I thought were true about what the individual actually is, right? Your reality, the reality of it, the impermanence is there, but we knew that from the time you were a kid, you knew that it wasn't going to be permanent. So that, that part, you know, you sort of have to deal with from the start after that it's all your learning after that is just that you were really mistaken about what it takes to be that sort of creature you thought maybe it had to be some magical whatever and now you think that wow it's a set of you know feedback loops and whatever else so that's surprising but mm, that's okay we we learn about you know we learn about uh, different underpinnings to things all the time so that's okay but i don't i don't think any of it diminishes the 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 sort of um uh, just the incredible awe of of being a sentient uh, being that can think about these things yeah, just to reiterate that. So I, I didn't in any way mean to demean um, <laughs> our selfhood or your selfhood in particular um, <laughs> by calling it a fantasy. I actually meant it um, and indeed have written about it um, in terms of something quite fantastic. Uh, so we've written papers called The Fantastic Organ. The brain is a fantastic organ just because it can produce these fantasies. It's absolutely fantastic. Uh, and of course, they... You know, in relation to our early ex, um, conversation, the capacity to have these fantasies, which have incredible explanatory power, if you can attain them and you can maintain them, um, is the 
part of the complexity which allows us to cross these bright lines or these gaps uh, and become or cuts and become um, closer to, to you know to the kind of creatures that can can, can even entertain the notion of the hard problem. Just to, so the, Mike, I just love that meta answer. We don't know what the answer will look like. <laughs> I'm going to tell Andy Clark about that. He'll tell David Charles. Um, to come back to the point, I, so I didn't mean to demean that. Um, and, and, you know, phrases that I remember coming across and, and having to learn uh, when I was a, a student, sort of things like existential angst and ontological security, all of these things, um, you know, rear their face if you are worried about these things but the very fact that you are able to entertain the notion that you are not real is quite remarkable um and i repeat is a, is a gift of a fantastic sort it is a kind of fantasy that very few um creatures have and, and sometimes even few people have so there are people who actually will go out there to try and um experience that and to become and treasure the uh, the gift of being able to make sense of the world as me um, by taking drugs or doing mindfulness um, therapy uh, in order to actually get to a state where um, sort of almost a Freudian oceanic state where selfhood is dissolved so they can experience it. And certainly if you've um, taken um, sort of psychedelic drugs in sufficient quantity, um, you may have that kind of experience, that sort of derealization or dissociative experience, which is the realization that your your construct your fantasy of selfhood that is engaged and um, engaging continuously um, for as long as you live um then um you know if you want to appreciate that then you have to experience the, you know the, the alternative hypothesis uh so you know experiencing derealization or in this instance depersonalization um is actually i think uh, uh, one really important step to self-understanding. So I don't see it as at all threatening nor diminishing. It's, it's just uh, part, part of self-understanding, which not everybody gets the opportunity to indulge. I mean, I mean, in some, you know, in some sense, the most destabilizing thing of all ought to be just the bare facts of developmental biology. When you learn that you are, in <laughs> fact, not some sort of uh, un indivisible monadic whatever, which I don't even I'm not even sure what that would entail if you were. But but the fact that we are all like all intelligences are collective intelligences, we are all made of parts. And the idea that you used to be this quiescent oocyte, this little bag of, of chemical reactions that did very little. And then very slowly, sort of step by step, you turned into whatever you are now. If that's not destabilizing, I don't know what is, because just knowing nothing, <laughs> knowing nothing else about evolution or I mean, to me, developmental biology is sort of like the, the you know, the queen of, of, of all the sciences, because just that fact that you go from 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 chemistry and physics to mind in, in nine months, plus however many years it takes. Uh, and that, and that you are literally a collection of cells that you could see in pond water, more or less, is just if, if you know, you're, you're, you're a bunch of cells in the trench coat, you know, like the, in the cartoons, like if, if that's not destabilizing, I don't know what, I don't know what else is. So quickly, just, I know we have to get going and I'd like to wrap with a, a set of brief questions, but quickly, Carl, and perhaps, well, anyone who would like to answer, what is it that separates those who are depersonalized or go through certain psychotic episodes from what is it that separates those who are fortunately like myself, where it's abating and I'm able to function and I'm able to have friends and so on versus those who go into a ward, because obviously those issues can, like you mentioned, it's a gift 
for some, it's not a gift. I felt like for myself, it's, I don't want that gift. I'll, I'll return that gift. I wish there was a receipt with it. But, and I still actually feel like that. But for some, obviously, it's, it's, it's a horrible and persistent feeling. So what is it that separates them? Well, I'll, I'll answer from the point of view of you know, um, a psychiatrist with a with, with a commitment to sort of a mechanistic or theoretical uh, understanding. I, I think it's um, the inability to resolve the um, the uncertainty that is uh, attends entertaining the dual hypothesis that I may exist or I may not exist as me. Um, but as soon as you increase your hypothesis space, you naturally induce an uncertainty an ambivalence and a, um, a kind of ambiguity. Um, so it is exactly the same, if you like, um, the, you know, we're talking about the same imperatives that we've been talking about all along, which is to sort of resolve uncertainty, resolve ambiguity, to make the most sense of things. So if you've entertained this hypothesis that you're, you are not you and you are you, and you can't fully resolve that, then you will find yourself in a state of chronic uncertainty. That unfortunately does have pathological consequences. Um, I'm not sure that being in a psych ward is necessarily too pathological. I mean, you know, the, 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 there are ways to live very nicely and constructively and fantastically in, in psych wards. And I've done that. I spent two years in a therapeutic community. Um, but there will be other sequelae of an, an inability to resolve uncertainty. They're expressed clinically and physiologically in terms of anesthetic load and the like, and chronic stress and the like, which can be very unpleasant uh, and ultimately can have physical consequences from the point of view of you know, the effects on your body. So the question now is, why can't some people resolve that uncertainty? I think it's then a question of the, the, the biophysical um, um, processes that enable you to update your beliefs and build good models of, of your world. Um, that, um, again, this is a very pragmatic answer from the point of view of, you know, of, of clinical, um, from, of a clinician. Um, uh, uh, probably the answers lie in the way that your brain has assembled itself to coordinate and attend to various sources of evidence. Um, and the, it looks at the mechanisms that underwrite that ability to deploy attention rest very much upon neuromodulatory neurotransmitters of the kind you, you know, you'll have heard about in the popular media and will have read about things like dopamine, serotonin, um, and indeed um, um, oxytocin, uh, all the drugs that are either used or the targets of um, psycholytics or psychedelics or psychomimetics or drugs that are used to uh, try and control some of these feelings and some of these uh, signs and symptoms, uh, you know, uh, specifically that attend um, anxiety disorders and, and, um, and depression. So, you know, understanding the, in this instance, the, not the feedback loops that do self-organization in a developing embryo, but the, the same kinds of mechanisms that do the, the feedback loops and the self-organization of different um, structures within the brain. Um, that can be construed as blankets within blankets or holographic screens within holographic screens or cells within cells, um, all um, complying with the same principles, but in the particular instance of the brain doing this and understanding the neurochemistry and the biophysics of this fundamental sense-making self-organization, um, it turns out that these are certain, these neurochemical uh, messages um, 
are uh, particularly important in resolving that kind of uncertainty. And it may be that you are, have either taken drugs or you have just grown up to not be able to deploy these neurotransmitters properly. Um, again, leading us to, well, how would you gain control of it? Well, you might want to do mindfulness training, meditation and the like, just internal attention state training, basically to mentalize how you deploy your attention. Mike, I know that you had a set of questions that you were eager to ask both Carl and Chris. Did you already get to all of them? Uh, well, that would be impossible, but I got to uh, I got to many <laughs> I got to many of them. Uh, most of the important ones uh, I learned I learned a massive amount today. This has been just amazing. Um, but uh, I will be um, uh, pestering both of them with additional questions in uh, you know years to come. Great. To end, I actually I have a question that I didn't email you that just occurred to me as you all were speaking. It's something that Professor Levin that you said. What are some aspects of your field? Maybe there are theories or concepts that your peers are extremely resistant to, but you are not. Wow. Um, we, I don't, I don't know if we got uh, time for all that. that. That's a lot. That's a lot. That's a lot of stuff. Um, I mean, the most basic, there, there are many, I mean, the, the most basic thing is this notion of uh, profound symmetries between these fields. Uh, you know, this, this idea that you can, um, that you can, you can basically import, uh, um, concepts and strategies from cognitive neuroscience or behavioral science and deploy them in other spaces, developmental biology and metabolism, that you can, that it even makes sense to talk about, um, you know, goals, memories, uh, planning, navigation, uh, all of these kinds of things outside of what we're used to, which is some, you know, rat in a maze or, or something like this. So, so that continuum, this idea that it goes, that, it, that, that something important goes all the way down or, or maybe a long way down, even if not all the way down, that, that, that is, uh, in 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 a few circles, that's okay. In most circles that that I deal with, that's just a, that's just complete you know a complete heresy. Um, yeah, there there are many others, but that's a, that's kind of a, a basic one. Chris, well, I, I I think that Mike really nailed it with that answer, and um, I would say yes, it's it's not. Uh, a popular idea that physics and biology and psychology are actually all more or less the same science. But uh, I think that they are. Mm -hmm. Professor Friston. Yeah, well, that, that would be my favorite heresy. I'm just going to agree with, with, with Mike and Chris. You know, the, the physics, biology, psychology, they're all the same thing. And I just wanted to end by saying, uh, you know, heresy, I'm not so sure anymore. I, 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 you know, the number of times, for example, I see Mike Levin cited in high-end philosophy journals and treatments um, suggests to me that, in fact, it's going to be the minority, um, in, at least in a few years' time, that, that don't subscribe to this more holistic um, 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 encompassing, um, and I think... Um, correct way of, view, of viewing, um, you know, sort of the life sciences, but, you know, more generally sort of the natural sciences. Um, uh, so, you know, who is going to be the heretic in a few years' time? Uh, <laughs> I, I suspect it won't be any of us. And I'll end with one that I see from particularly Chris and Michael is it sounds like without using the word, it sounds like what you all are doing or trying to understand God or trying to come up with a model of God. And the reason why I say that is because 
with looking at a neuron and saying, okay, how can a neuron look around and have some model and know that it's embedded in something higher? That sounds to me like, well, if we apply that to ourselves and continually do so, we would reach something akin to God. And then Chris with the quantum babbling, if one can think of it like that. Well, what is babbling? I know that maybe you all don't want to use the word God, but for me, what I I have that many of my peers are extremely against would be to philosophize about God or to explicate God or to take God seriously as not an old man in the sky with a beard. And so I I see you all as doing something similar and I'm, I'm happy to be in your company. I'm extremely lucky. All science um, starts with an act of faith, with a very important act of faith, which is that the world is in some way understandable, that we are not just a bubble in this, um, you know, random universe that just happens to, you know, as, as, a, as, a, as a total random string of, of, uh, of coincidence looks like it's got laws and then, and then tomorrow somewhere, you know, at the, while you sleep, the whole thing falls apart and we go back to a random, you know, sort of random distribution of events. So we all, th there's no proof of any of it, of any of that, right? We take, we have to take that on faith. And that may be for a scientist, that may be the most destabilizing thing. If you can't get yourself to believe that, that, that the world isn't for some weird reason, understandable and, and amenable, at least to some extent to our logic and probing, then, then you can't do science. You can't do any of the things that, that we do. So, so being uh, useful and, and, and hopefully productive in, in what we do starts with that act of faith that is just completely, to my knowledge, it's, 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 it's an axiom. It's not based on any evidence that you could possibly have. So, so I do think that sort of underlies everything that we do, just this idea that we can, in fact, squeeze some understanding out of what's going on around us. I'd also think you'd be surprised. I know that you said that it doesn't comport with the traditional definition of God, but it depends on what tradition and how far back one goes because there are mystics, yeah. of, let's say Christian mystics and Islam Muslim mystics or Islamic mystics and so on. Yeah. And then obviously then the Eastern end is much more mystical. So, okay. Well, thank you all so much for, for, thank you so much for coming out to this and thank you. I, I've, I've learned a tremendous amount and I hope you all have too. I, I, I'm, I'm blessed and thank you so much. Well, thank you very much. This was this was a very interesting conversation, and thank you very much for putting it together. Yeah, absolutely. This is this is great, great, great idea. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, I'm just thank super you. pleased, super pleased to have been part of it. Yeah, it went in directions that I didn't expect. I didn't. I don't even think I looked at my notes, my my notepad here, I and mean, I wrote some notes, but they occurred to me in the moment. Okay, thank you all, Mike. I know you got to get going, and and so well, thank you all. All right, thank you. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks, gentlemen. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Take care. The podcast is now finished. If you'd like to support conversations like this, then do consider going to patreon.com slash C-U-R-T-J-A-I-M-U-N-G-A-L. That is Kurt Jaimungal. It's support from the patrons and from the sponsors that allow me to do this full-time. Every dollar helps tremendously. Thank you.